Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, uh, instructor in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. I am delighted to be joined today by Matt Carlson and Seth Lewis, who are two of the three authors on the book News After Trump, Journalism's Crisis of Relevance in a Changed Media Culture, which they wrote along with Sue Robinson. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Seth and Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. So Matt, we'll, we'll start with you. Talk a little bit about the, the origin story of, of this project. The origin story of this, this project was when I was doing dishes one day and I was thinking, how is it that we capture just the immenseness of the of the Trump administration and its meaning for journalism. And it was just so hard to think of any one incident because every incident just seemed so big and then overshadowed a week later or a day later or an hour later. And I realized I should should write a book. And what I wanted to do was try to capture all the little things that were happening. And then I soon realized that's a terrible idea <laughs> because you know it's not really the the, the the encyclopedia that matters, but making science. Soon after, I contacted Sue Robinson, who's a, a very good friend of mine, that just bounced an idea. Like, does this make sense? Should I devote a couple of years to, to doing this? And she was like, can I... Can I join in? And I was like, absolutely. And then Seth shortly after we asked Seth for some advice and Seth kind of left, felt left out too. So we we did it together. And it, you know, the three of us are really good friends. And with a project like this, where you're spending years just immersed in this material, you really want to be around people that you trust and that you value and that you can rely on. And so the three of us, I think, made this project much better than it would have been if I would have just kept doing it myself. Yeah, that sounds like a path to insanity, trying to sort through all this stuff on your own without having any kind of any, of, any kind of a sounding board. Yeah, so Seth, talk a little bit more about you know why why you wanted to to come on board with this project and and how it fits into your your broader research interests. Sure, thanks. Well, first I should say this book is is very much Matt's brainchild. I think Sue and I just felt really glad to be you know part of the action here. It, it, you know, it was a fascinating process for us to 
to sort of think this through and then rethink it and then again and again, because I think we, you know, we bring certain assumptions to this project, having studied journalism, I think between the three of us, we're probably about 40 years now doing research on, on news in some fashion. Um, but I found that over the course of the project, we were, you know, coming, I, I felt like the conclusions we arrived at were different, quite different, maybe from where we might have started from. And I think that was, it's an important, I think, thing to acknowledge. I, I think it probably just figures into our larger interest in trying to make sense of what is happening to journalism in this uh, kind of confounding moment, right? That partly has to do with technological change, with the rise of social and smartphones and what that has meant for news business models and, and platforms and so forth. But also just what what we've seen in the last several years with regard to the rise of populism, I mean, Trump being the key manifestation of that in the U.S., but we're seeing lots of other examples elsewhere in the world, and what that means for journalism as an institution, as a profession, of its relevance, its, its importance, and whether it really makes a difference, and in what way and how in the world today. So I think all you know, the three of us brought to to that those sets of questions, you know, things we've done in the past, but but wanted to kind of try out those ideas and figure out new ways of looking at them through the through the lens of the case of Trump. Yeah. And, you know, to, to take us back a little bit before Trump, you, you talk in the book about the, the high modernist moment in, in journalism and sort of where we've come since then. Can, can you talk about, you know, what, what that moment was and, you know, what it, what it represented and, you know, how, how perhaps some of those ideas are still kind of sticking around in, in news and in journalism culture today? Yeah, we don't have to go back very far in media history to to think about a time when journalism was both very popular. There weren't as many other voices. So we rely on journalists for so much in sort of this area era of, of, of public public information. And also a time when journalism was very profitable, right? Very secure. You know, you look at these large profit margins and all of the concern was, you know, is, is journalism making too much money was, was one of our major concerns for a long time. And that system worked in a way where journalists basically made a deal. And their deal was, we will be part of the power of society without holding power, right? That, that journalists will be involved. They will, it's very much an elite institution. Journalists are, are, are constantly sounding, sounding boards for elites. And they're in the center of everything. But at the same time, they, they hold back and say, we're not going to be part of the power. We're going to be objective, neutral, impartial all of that. And that was basically a system that functioned for a long time. And the two parties functioned in ways that you know, they would fight with each other, but sort of had a larger sense of, of connection, of institutional background, that there was a sort of way that the game worked and everybody agreed on that. And, and that's really what we see as having fallen apart when we got to this book, right? Like that's the sort of the, the backdrop by which we write. And, and our concern here really is to get beyond Trump, right? We call the book News After Trump, partly because Trump is no longer in office, but partly because we wanted to get beyond this idea that one person did this. Mm -hmm. That it's a systemic issue that happened over a long period of time that really Trump benefited from. But the, the collapse of this modernist idea of of the way that the press worked, the introduction of all these other new voices through um, digital media and other ways, the fact that Trump can use Twitter to reach people just as easily as NBC News. These were the kinds of changes that we wanted to capture that are not going away. Even if Trump goes away, the changes are not going away. Right. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is really something that I, I think, you know, if, if not Trump himself, his team sort of saw, and I don't, I don't know if you'd go as, as far as to say exploited, but certainly kind of saw these these patterns and, you know, what was happening and, and really how to how to take control of of all of these these factors and, and use them for his own gain to, to kind of hijack the media and, and you know, grab attention by by latching on to all of these norms and, and the, the ways that they were changing. Yeah, I would say that we might have used the word exploited in the book somewhere, but I think that you're certainly getting at the basic idea, right, which is that perhaps more so than any politician, certainly in recent memory, you know, took, Trump took advantage of a, a sort of a somewhat naive press, right? It's just not to say that journalists weren't aware of the kinds of maybe the, the threats posed by Trump, but certainly it would, it would appear that a lot of the reporting from 2015 and 2016 did not seem to indicate they were fully aware. And I, I think what it suggests is that you know Trump took advantage of a kind of um, mode of objectivity that tends to give wide berth, wide latitude to politicians and what they say. And it uses kind of the quote as a kind of key nugget of information that yes, it might sit within some context, but has often provided quite a lot of amplification. And so I think what journalists did in, in the run-up to the Trump presidency you know, during his campaign, right? Trump was great news fodder. He was, frankly, he was really interesting. He said things off the cuff. He was, he ad-libbed. He was unlike a typical politician. He broke the rules. And if you look around, I mean, those are the types of things that make news, right? Things that are outside the norm and that are really attention grabbing. And so for journalists, um, you know, I think as the as I think as the president of CBS said, you know, Trump may be bad for the country, but he's damn good for CBS, right? It's that basic idea of like there was outsized attention, audience attention to Trump and journalists that would in some ways was bene- mutually beneficial for Trump and for journalists in the 2015-2016 period. So there's no question that that he had kind of exploited some basic tendencies of how news is covered, and he was well aware of that from his um, background in media and in entertainment. And then, but then. There's a key shift that occurs, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about some of this, where, you know, he then also uses the press as a key political foil as the opposition, Mm -hmm. right? In some ways, almost more so than Democrats. It's the press that becomes the enemy and is situated as his key opponent. And lo and behold, not a lot of people, including not a lot of Democrats necessarily, love the press. And so that actually is very convenient then to turn journalists into uh, your political foe. Yeah, you know, I, I teach introductory news writing and I, I was kind of going through like my my lesson about newsworthiness and Trump kind of ticks off a lot of the, the things on the slide, right? Novelty, conflict, prominence, all of these things. So yeah, it's it's interesting how those things all kind of kind of lined up. But yeah, let's let's talk more about the the sort of enemy of of the people. You know, what what I guess was your your reaction as you, you saw this unfolding as as people who <laughs> study the media and you have studied it for for years, if not decades? You know, what did you think at the at the time and, and how has that thinking changed as you you were reflecting on sort of the Trump era as a whole when when you were putting this this book together? I think we're actually at the this week is the five year anniversary, the first time he used the phrase. I was just looking at that today, like, oh, that that's five years ago. And I, you know, I, it was shocking at the time. And it, it should be shocking now. But I think we've gotten so used to it. And, and one of the things we discovered in the book was how, how this kind of rhetoric ratcheted up. Right. So early on, the press is very useful for Trump, as we discussed. Like he knew how to get their attention and they really wanted to cover him. It's so boring covering political candidates. They say the same thing every night, unless you're Trump. And then he did start bashing the Seth talked about. 
But when he became president, the press function changed, right? So during the during the campaign, the, the press serves a function for him and that he bashes the press in order to get attention and in order to try to try to inoculate himself from some of these attacks. But when he gets to be president, all of a sudden you have to do things, right? Once you are in office, you have to you have to do things. And if you don't do those things, you need to explain why not. And the press as an enemy is a good foil, right? And so he, we argue in the book that Trump had to elevate the press into an enemy, not just not just an adversary, but an enemy in order to explain why all these things Trump said would happen did not happen. And so once we see that sort of that, that building up, it, it makes a lot more sense strategically. I think we, we're all just sort of blown over by the president of the United States calling the press the enemy and the clear fascist implications, right? But when you see it strategically laid out, it, it makes total sense. It's his move. It's really the only move that he has. And so we have to understand it as something that's awful, but also something that makes sense if you want to have power in a populist way, the way that Donald Trump wanted to have power. Right. And and you also write about how the press fought back against this and, and, and what they do. And you, you ultimately conclude that it was a missed opportunity to demonstrate journalism's relevance. Talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that journalists, um, you know, to go back to what Matt said earlier about how there was this kind of high modern moment of journalism, right? As it's sometimes characterized, I, I do interviews with news consumers for some of my research. It's interesting how often some of them invoke Walter Cronkite as this kind of, you know, this avatar, this figure of what journalism used to be. Even people who never lived during that period, right? They they still they still have this kind of notion that that's what journalism is or ought to be, and 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 they use that as a standard to say then that journalism today is not the same as it was and it's it's failed and so on. The reason I bring that up is, I think you know it's interesting that journalists have kind of you could say over time have have struggled to explain themselves, have struggled to kind of articulate a vision of what they can and should be. I mean. Is that really the, you know, is the the Walter Cronkite or the Watergate, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, are, are these sorts of images from film, are these the only ones that people can really associate with what they see as like good, strong, uh, powerful journalism? You know, there's been, and there are movies recently too that kind of illustrate some of that. And I, I just think it's, you know, journalists have struggled to kind of really articulate for people why they are essential in the world, right? Outside of, I think, the kind of depictions that people see in pop culture. In me, in me, in uh, kind of entertainment. So, in the course of you know, with Trump's attacks and so forth, there came a moment wh- where journalists publicized. They kind of coordinated on something, which is very rare for journalists to do. They they really don't ever do anything of this nature. So it was quite singular in that the editorial boards of many, many newspapers around the country, hundreds of newspapers, organized to say that on this particular day, we're going to publish editorials speaking out about what Trump is doing and how he's denigrating the press and what that means for the country and for democracy and so forth. Now, the actual nature of the editorials that were published, you know, took on kind of a different flavor in some cases from different organizations. But, you know, the the fact that that we did see this coordinated response was quite unique. But yet you could also say that it maybe landed with a thud in the sense that it nothing really changed. And there's not a lot of evidence that it actually maybe had the kind of intended impact. Perhaps if nothing else, it at least did signal very clearly that journalists were beginning to take the Trump threat more seriously, mm-hmm. even as they were also kind of struggling to figure out how it, what a coordinated response to this truly looks like. And I think that's, you know, in part because 
journalists do tend to want to go alone. They tend to want to do their own individual thing and, you know, organizations compete against one another. We've seen some of that change in the profession in recent years, but, but by and large, that, that's been the case. And so it, it wasn't this sort of clear, consistent response that had a clear, consistent outcome. But I think it did signal at least a degree to which the press was trying to turn the tide. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder about that, the, the value of a consistent response, given you, you know, what we were talking about earlier about how, you know, news outlets are just one of many, many sources of, of information that, that people have these days and people might not even necessarily know whether what they're looking at is, is a news outlet versus, you know, a, a personal blog or you know, who knows what else they find on the internet, right? So I just, I wonder if, if you've thought about that at all, like given the, the very fractured nature of media today, like how, how relevant coordination among news outlets will be moving forward. One of the things that you realize when you're a professor in our field, right, is that students always want to use the word media is. And Mm -hmm. I wish I had a stamp that said media, media are. It's and and it's hard to it's hard to fight that sometimes because that's the way it's talked about so often. The media is and it's this big agglomeration of all these different things. And we've been talking that way for a long time. We talk about the press of the media. but really, we have to recognize just how much variety there is in, in this world. And, and there's more variety. And it's it's this is what's happened, I think, more and more that we we haven't really um, been able to find ways to talk about it. Like, you know, if you think about like the New York Times, for example, you know, the New York Times is a newspaper, the Lafayette Journal and Courier, my local hometown paper in Indiana, is a paper. And at some point, they were not that dissimilar. Right. The New York Times is bigger. The Lafayette Journal and Courier is smaller. But now they're they're just different things. The New York Times, I, I subscribe to their cooking website. I mean, this is a very strange enterprise. They just bought uh, a sports website. They've become an international global digital news brand with crazy resources. The Lafayette Journal and Courier is, is, is hanging on by a thread, um, barely alive as a paper anymore. And it's that discrepancy that is really difficult to talk about right now. And in some ways, we have the best journalism we've ever had. We really have outstanding tools, outstanding journalists, really well-trained at wonderful schools like at Minnesota, Penn State, and Oregon. And yet we have this, this real discrepancy here. And so it makes it really hard to talk about any sort of uh, agglomeration of what we're seeing. And one of the things we saw, too, in the, in the editorial sort of protecting journalists against Trump's attacks was the small papers really retreated towards their community sense in a way that a large paper couldn't. It makes no sense for the New York Times to talk about community, right? It's not their thing. But for a small paper, that's what they would say. Like, look, our journalists live in our communities. They go to our schools. They drive on our streets. They use our resources. And and, and that sort of pushing was one of the things that we were most optimistic about seeing is, is how that happened. So what we have is a, is a media sphere just within news that's incredibly diverse. I mean, on top of that, we can look at cable, we can look at digital news. And then on top of that, we have this extra layer of all these other voices out there in the, in the, in the larger media world. And that gets us back to this idea of relevance. So relevance shows up in the subtitle of our book. And it, it was something that we sort of figured out early on of, you know, it's not, it's, it's not trust anymore. It's not even audience size. It's relevance. Relevance is a larger term. It really gets to whether or not the press matter. And it's just, just to go back and think about a generation ago, that would have been a, a crazy thing to say. It would have absolutely made no sense. 
it, it would have been like, what are you talking about? And now everyone, I think intuitively understands when we say, yes, we're talking about relevance. So, oh yes, that, that makes mm-hmm. sense. So that shift took place in a generation and took gen- a place within the changing fortunes in the news industry and some rising and some thinking and all these other voices. And over the election, the presidency was a call for us to really pay attention to this environment in ways that we, we have it and really understand how different it is from the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wonder, we, you just mentioned journalism schools there, including the the institutions that, that the, the three of us work at. And I, before we come back to, to talking about the, the media and kind of how it, 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 it moves forward, how do some of these, these, these values, these sort of norms that, that we've been talking about, how does that filter down into the way journalism is is taught and what what role do you see J schools having in these you know kind of bigger shifts toward an, an increased increased relevance for news moving forward yeah it's such a big and important question I, I direct the journalism undergraduate journalism program here at the University of Oregon and all three of us teach courses related to, to news and journalism whether at the undergrad or grad level and you know so we're, we're it very much kind of living through these questions of what should journalism schools and programs do differently, if anything, or continue doing right what they've always done. And I think we're we're right in the midst of those debates here at Oregon at the moment. I I would just say that I, I think a few things kind of come to mind. You know, one one element I think of this book that we hope comes through is that it's not as if you know it's not as if journalism is either relevant or irrelevant. It's not as whether journalism has failed or has somehow succeeded. It's not a binary kind of yes or no, one way or the other type of thing, right? It's deeply complicated, just like this media environment is very fractured. And so there are ways in which there are things journalists do that are powerful and important and should be retained. And there are also kind of habits and norms and routines that may not be serving journalism very well. And part of what other scholars have done, we're not the only ones, but what we're hoping to do in this book is to call out some of the ways in which journalists can can move beyond things that are perhaps you know not helping the situation and instead find ways of uh, of moving toward a different approach right one that prioritizes communities and their concerns one that takes seriously the questions of what do journalists stand for what is their role in helping to strengthen and safeguard democracy you know opportunities do they have to to, to amplify marginalized voices as opposed to just reinforcing official voices in the status quo you know what are ways in which journalists can uh, essentially you know be situated as the as the means of facilitating community engagement and conversation as opposed to just telling stories in traditional ways that are from a from an ethos of detachment. And so all of that relates to then how do we teach these things, right? So it's one thing for us as researchers to write about this and pontificate about it and theorize about it, but then, you know, in the classroom, are we just teaching journalism and reporting and writing 101 the same way we've always done it for 20, 30, 40 years? So there's an opportunity. And I would, you know, I'm happy to say that here at Oregon that we have a lot of experimentation kind of going on when it comes to trying out different modes of telling stories and doing journalism and engaging with communities, whether it's in the form of solutions journalism, which tries to not just, you know, talk about the problems in communities that investigative journalism often does, and then just sort of walks away from the situation and looks for other people to clean up the mess, as it were. But solutions journalism really tries to kind of both report on and also work with communities in trying to propose solutions to problems. We have other kinds of forms of news that are being tried out here that, again, are much more engaged with communities. So these are just some indications where we can we can still talk about how to gather and report on facts, 
how to interview effectively, like how to you know really gather information and provide it to people in ways that will serve them well, both for politics and but just you know life generally. And there are also ways we can talk about doing that in a, in a way that is just more reflective of the kinds of morals, values, norms we want to see uh, developing in the future. Yeah, I, yeah, just to add to that, I think that, you know, it's really the responsibility of journalism schools right now to be places for these conversations and for this this kind of work. I mean, you know, as, as the industry suffers through incredible financial problems, most of the journalism schools are still pretty secure and they, they need to be the site for not not just for fun trying new things, but really for thinking about the future of the field. So I'm really optimistic. I, I, I you know, even writing about a book with, with a relevance in the title, I tell our students, this is a great time to get into journalism. I mean, amazing tools, amazing new avenues into the, the, to the profession, doing it yourself. This is a really wonderful time. And I think a lot of students have become interested in journalism after the Trump years too. I think we see an uptick in people interested in wanting to be involved. So our job in journalism schools is really to continue to be a space that's that's well supported that can be open to these ideas and can support scholars who are doing work on on journalism in different ways than than you won't see in the industry so it's a great time i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i would just just quickly add on that i think you know the, the disruption that has been wrought on the news industry has actually opened up all kinds of space and opportunity for younger journalists to kind of move up in the world and to um, start new ventures or to you know kind of enter it's you know take on take on opportunities of leadership that never would have been available a couple of decades ago, you know, when I was getting started as a new journalist, where there was much more of the kind of traditional expectation of moving your way up slowly, going from outlet to outlet, paper to paper, from smaller to larger over time. And instead, I think what you're seeing is that students who are really good and sharp and committed and focused can can move up so quickly and they get such tremendous opportunities. And I think that, you know, it's also worth just mentioning that like the skills that we teach in journalism schools are widely relevant and will remain so in the future and kind of in a in a very interesting and, and engaging media world that we're in. I mean, I think one of the things we tried to convey in the book, maybe hopefully a key contribution, is this notion that journalism has been decentered in the media landscape and, and in media culture, I should say. And so this both kind of, it raises an, an opportunity for journalism to both kind of rediscover its place and rediscover its relevance. But also it means that you know, we, we need to recognize that the type of things that we maybe perhaps previously associated with journalism are kind of being, in a sense, spread out elsewhere, right? There are lots of interesting things being done through blogs and podcasts and all kinds of white papers and other sorts of like reports 
that are not necessarily produced by journalists, but in many ways contribute to the kinds of, you know, political information or news information that we have long associated with journalism. So in, in a sense, like journalism just, it doesn't look the same anymore, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some really terrific and exciting opportunities. But, you know, to your point about about younger reporters and, and you know, I, I agree that there definitely are lots of, of new new avenues and, and opportunities that would not have existed a generation ago. But there's also, I think, as, as you point out in the book, some some conflicts between, you know, younger reporters who want to have, you know, more want to to put their their voice or want to bring their perspective more to the story, kind of running into some of those more kind of older norms of of objectivity. This notion, I think it, you, you connect it to, you know, the our idea of, of news consumers and, you know, what how we think people make decisions based on the information that they get or versus what they what they actually do. Yeah, that's a good way to start the question, because, if, you know, there's sort of this assumption that we all sit here gathering information and then we sit and ponder and we think about what to do with it. And then we make uh, uh, rational choices. And yeah, in, in some sense, there's a little bit of that. But in a lot of sense, it's it's not really how news works or how being part of an audience works. And and I, I think part of the you know, part of the, the, the drama that plays out and we talk about in our book is, is there's a few people who are really sort of the old guard. And the two we pinpoint are Marty Baron from the Washington Post, now retired, and Dean Bacay from the New York Times. I mean, arguably the two most important news managers, I would say, right? You know, people in the United States. And their sense was stories speak for themselves. We give people the facts, we don't get involved, and we tell the stories. And And that's, born out of the sense that we give people facts and they make good decisions with them. And it's also born out, I think, in this belief, and this is one of the things that, that I think we'll get to a little bit more in, in this discussion, is that almost like the news has got to stay as neutral as possible or you'll just alienate more people. And the other people will say, look, people already feel alienated. It doesn't matter what's in the news story. It's how it's talked about by these larger narratives, like the press is the enemy of the people. You know, one of the things about the enemy story, when Trump talks about the press as the enemy of the people, he never called out an individual story. He wasn't quibbling about this quote on page three. He would be like the press or the media are the enemy of the people. And you had to try to, and, and that sort of large statement meant that people could fill anything into that bucket, right? Any individual story, anything they saw. So once that's there, then this idea that neutrality will win people back just doesn't carry any water anymore. And I think what we see is a generational divide where we see a lot of younger journalists who are really seeing news as embodied, as coming from a place, as not just news from nowhere, but from actual people with actual perspective. And that is a really big shift. I mean, it's a really big shift in expectations uh, about what journalism should do and should not do. And it's still playing out now. It's still playing out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a generation long sort of struggle over what um, news norms should be. And it's really important to pay attention to, because I think this is going to be how we see journalism redefined. Mm -hmm. And I mean, how important is it to, to kind of come back to something we, we were talking about earlier about, you know, sort of coordination among news outlets? I mean, is it... Is it important that, you know, to 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 go back to the the two papers you cited, Matt, the you know, New York Times and the the Lafayette, Indiana paper, like how how important is it that, you know, those two 
organizations kind of do the same thing when it comes to how they think about things like objectivity, like centering communities, like, you know, letting letting reporters have more more of a voice in their coverage? Yeah, I think you're going to see, I think we need to see bigger differences. I mean, I think that it's, they just operate in different worlds. And, you know, it made sense when the newspaper was everything. You got the newspaper and it had the, you know, international news to the local news. But now we have so many different other kinds of sources. We need to rethink what these outlets do. And, and they need to, to work on what's, what's the special added value they have. So a place like Lafayette, Indiana, I mean, it's it's a typical Midwestern Indiana, Midwestern city. It has its own politics, its own issues, it has its own issues with race and the economy that and, and sort of opioid addiction and all these different things that, that could really only be understood on the ground there. And they need to be able to find ways to, 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 to address that. But the New York Times is amazing. I mean, we you know, the New York Times coverage of the, the, the drone attack, where they really were able to go in and figure out the U.S. military's behind the drone attack that they denied. It's one of the best pieces of journalism I've ever seen in my life. How, how many outlets in the world can do that kind of work? Mm. I mean, a handful at best. We need both of those. We need the local story about what's going on in our neighborhood, and we need the international story that uses incredible resources to, to figure out that, you know, something like a drone attack happened and it was caused by the government. You know, the... We need all of those things. And I think we need to see a rearrangement there as, as, as journalists find the value added. Like what is it that they're contributing? And, and maybe the, and that's, again, I'm trying to be optimistic here. Like, I think this is a good moment in this turmoil to force people to say, you can't just been do, keep doing what you're doing. You need to find a way to move forward and serve the public. And I think that's hopefully what we'll see more of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, you put forward you know, one, one way of, of figuring out some of these things and, and trying to, to wrestle with some of these, these big questions is by articulating a moral voice in, in journalism. So tell us more about what that is and, you know, how you see it play out. Yeah. So in the concluding part of the book, we tried to differentiate between what uh, we call the standard model of journalism, which in some ways would just be kind of a you know status quo continuation of what they have always done, a sort of a traditional adherence to objectivity in in the way that journalists have tried to practice that, especially in the U.S. And then another path, so that could be one path forward, right? And the other path forward could be trying to adopt a more of a moral voice. And I think you know any I, obviously these these terms can be a little bit tricky, and I think for some people sort of can trigger certain ideas that oh. You're just suggesting that journalists should be biased and opinionated and they should bring all their <clears throat> politics into the situation. And I think to Matt, Matt's point earlier, it's like, well, people already think journalists are biased. <laughs> people already <laughs> think journalists are like hopelessly slanted in their work. So, it, you know, just continuing to do what we've always done probably won't be particularly helpful. Yes. I mean, we, we need that there's a certain place for that, perhaps that neutral voice in certain in a certain fashion. But what. I think the big question here, and maybe in some way we're going to kind of see it get sorted out in the marketplace of ideas as certain types of news organizations succeed and others fail, is you know how are journalists going to create more meaningful, lasting value for communities? And part of that may be trying to rethink how they situate themselves relative to the things they cover. And that may just be better acknowledging their own position and what and that person, what that positionality means for how they cover things. It may be particularly acknowledging where do they stand on certain issues. For example, this is not necessarily taking a kind of partisan perspective of like we are pro-democrat and anti-republican but more so like 
we care about these five or six things, right? We really care about supporting democracy. We care about supporting this community. We care about X, Y, or Z. And just being explicit about that and then being willing to say, as a result, we're going to steer coverage toward these issues, whether it be climate change or some other thing. And just they're going to take a little bit more of a asserted stance towards saying these things matter. And we believe these things matter to you as well. And so here's how we're going to try to uh, cover them. And it's not a means of trying to engage as advocates, right? Thinking that you already have the answer before you've done the investigation, but rather trying to say that um, we're just trying to more clearly and transparently, transparently communicate who we are, what we're doing, and why we're doing it, and on and who are we working for here? Because I think many people don't feel like journalists are working for them, and what they're producing is not working for them either. So, uh, you know, there's an opportunity for journalists simply to say, how can we reset the terms of engagement that we have with our audiences? create more lasting, meaningful value with communities. And, you know, and maybe that looks a little bit different in tone, style, substance from the way we've thought about what journalism is from the past. One of the things with our book is when we were wrapping it up, we were pretty close to being done in, in fall of 2020. And, you know, we realized, well, we should probably hold off until the election. And then, and then we did. And then like, okay, well, the election seems to be resolved. And then the January 6th attacks happened, and we rewrote um, several parts of the book. We completely rewrote the introduction. We, 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 we were forced into the situation where we had to reckon with what looked like almost the most severe consequences of this kind of environment where this, this lie of, uh, of stolen election was allowed to fester to the point where people would go. And, you know, in a sense, I'm not going to defend a tax on the Capitol, but if you really believe the Capitol, the election was stolen, wouldn't you want to also get up there and be like, this is wrong? The problem is the information is wrong. And it's not just a conspiracy theory from the corners of the world that we've all known. It's from the president of the United States at the time, right? And what we saw in response to the attacks was journalists having to stand up a bit more, cut off Trump when he's saying the lies, to call out the the obvious danger of these attacks and, and what they both what was manifest and what was symbolic in them in terms of overthrowing the United States government. And you know, it's it's, it's something we applaud, but we, we wanted to see the moral voice happen. And, and you know, it, it shouldn't just be when the United States Capitol is attacked, the moral voice kicks in because it's too late by then. And there are a lot of things that we pointed out where journalists would just dance around the idea of whether or not Trump was saying something that was a lie or something that was racist. And, the, you know, we have a quote in the book from the AP where the AP says, we just tell you what was said and what's true. We're not going to tell you it's a lie. It's up for you to decide. And we think that's terrible. We really think that the moral voice is it, it, that lying, not, not just spin, not just like trying to get an opinion over someone else's, but actual lying is is something that journalists need to call out because they know it's a lie, right? As best as anyone else, but the tools aren't really there to to do that. So yeah, again, the moral voice is something that as we talk about the book, a lot of people, you know, start to get a little bit, okay, well, what do you want journalists to do? That seems like a lot of weight, but you know, it comes down to it's not the same as opinion. It's about journalists recognizing themselves as being part of the communities that they're covering. And in January 6th, being part of the United States, watching it be attacked, that was one thing that, that happened. But I think this needs to happen more often. We need to see journalists be more empowered when they see things that are, are just beyond the bounds of civil society and, and to call it out and to make it known that this is not acceptable. Well, and, it, and just to add on that, it, it, it doesn't mean 
avoiding or, or sort of um, overlooking evidence, right? If anything else, I mean, mm -hmm. nothing else, the, the moral voice is about taking more seriously the process of bringing forth evidence, making it transparent. You still want to allow people to kind of see things for themselves and come to conclusions. But it, it, the, the whole idea is, can journalists be more effective at telling things as they really are based on what they can tell from their knowledge and experience and expertise. So it's it's valuing the importance and role of a journalist to be able to make certain judgments based on because that's exactly what people expect them to do, right? The journalist is there, they see more, they have the kind of witness, the 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 evidence and so forth. So they need to be clear about communicating that. Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen a lot, you know, especially in the past year since since the insurrection calls for journalists to be more explicit about defending democracy at a time when one of the major political parties is is not. And you know, I wonder, you know, the the Neiman Lab predictions this year were filled with with essays about journalism and the you know future of democracy. I wonder what you make of that. I think there's also some thinking out there that you know, g getting too wrapped up in this, you know, democracy business is perhaps a distraction from some of the issues or, you know, misaligned between things that, you know, readers or, or news consumers, information consumers might care about more sort of everyday types of concerns that might be relevant to communities. I, think, well, I would go ahead. Mike. Okay. I mean, there's definitely room for, for both. And we're going to always have this, these different kinds of uh, of stories. I mean, there are tens of thousands of journalists working in the United States. But I guess my concern is, is can journalists sound the alarm bell that something is amiss? And and that gets back to our question of relevance. And and one of the things that we, we point out in the book is like, there's plenty of amazing reporting about the terrible things that Donald Trump has done. And Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, giving journalists giving prizes to each other for how good their work is. We finally Trump's tax returns, right? And nobody cared. Nobody in the end cared one lick. And I think that is, and I think that's, that's part of it, is, is how could journalists find a way to get enough voice when there are issues that are, are just really scary that they need to be able to sound the alarm bell. And, you know, the traditional model of journalism is you uncover a scandal and something happens. And now you uncover a scandal and people raise money off of, of, of it, like how bad we're being victimized by the press. So, so I, 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 I don't, I'm not too worried about overloading yet on the democracy stuff. I think we need to see more of it. I mean, I would agree. I think that, I think we can just acknowledge that th there's a lot that journalists can still do in really understanding what people want and value about news. I, I, I think we, it's fair to say that the history of you know, the American press of the last several decades is not one of a very cozy relationship and in strong understanding between journalists and the, and the audiences they serve. If anything else, in fact, you know, journalists sort of were happy to ignore the audience, didn't really want to think about you know, what they had to say. And I mean, I remember working in a newsroom when the phone calls that would come in, right, were just from what we presume to be kind of the cranky readers who had, you know, complained about a mistake on page seven. And so I, I think that what has changed? Well, a lot of things have changed. But one, for one thing, journalists have had to become much more attuned to the business model, which has now made them more aware of their audience and the kind of need for, in this case, now nowadays, uh, reader revenue and so forth. But also, of course, you know, technology has changed just the potential interactions between journalists and audience in all kinds of ways. And so there's just this moment of kind of, and, and you know, that has brought to the fore the role of digital metrics in newsrooms, right? Mm -hmm. Journalists are much more aware of like what types of their stories are, in a sense, sticking and wh what's getting picked up, what's being shared and what's being talked about. So all of this is kind of, I think, led up to 
an opportunity for journalists to reimagine and rethink that relationship with audiences. And I, it is worth pointing out that in some of our research, you know, when you talk to people about what they want from news, they they seem to want just the facts, right? They talk very much about, I want just straight news. I don't want opinion. I don't want the journalist voice and the things. So in some ways that would contradict what we're talking about in the book. I fully recognize that. But I also think that there could be some in, inherent sort of uh, weaknesses, even in what people are saying here, because how many people are out there queuing up to get more of the Associated Press? Like, just give me more of the AP wire, that traditional inverted pyramid storytelling. Like, I just want something very stripped down and basic, right? Nobody's doing that. No, audiences are voting with their feet, right? They, they are going to, they already go to venues that t- have a bit more of a, you know, maybe partisan taint, right? So we're not, we're not suggesting that like the, all of the institutional news media should look more like Fox News or should look more like kind of highly partisan media, but rather just to say, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a tension here. There's a contradiction. People in, in one sense saying they want just the facts, but in another way, obviously manifesting that they want reinforcement. We're not asking journalists to give either. We're just asking journalists to do a better job of trying to really connect with and understand the lived realities, lived experiences and concerns of their communities in the hopes that that will be a better form of journalism, right? Not wholly opinion, but not then so objective that it leads to false equivalence, false balance, and, and really sorts of uh, problematic situations like the ones we've had. Right. So, you know, on that point about about balance and and you know Fox News in particular as as you were talking I was thinking about so as as we're recording this it's the day after former president Trump gave an interview to Steve Inskeep on NPR so that happens yesterday this morning I'm on the treadmill at the gym and I see on Fox News they're talking about this interview and sort of using it as an opportunity to you know lambast NPR and talk about how biased it is and all these things and so I, I think there's something here about relevance right where there's a sort of right wing media e- ecosystem that is you know as as much of a of an adversary or or a foil to mainstream media or it's this whole other filter that information gets put through how if at all do you think mainstream or non right wing news outlets should should think about that as as they're thinking about this this bigger question of of relevance i think they need to recognize that they're being attacked i mean there's this you know, traditionally, there's no real tools for journalists to fight back, right? Because they're supposed to take themselves out. Back to what I was talking about at the very beginning, right? That, you know, the agreement was that journalists get to have power, but they have to to not have power. They get to be around the powerful in the center of society, but they're not supposed to act on it. They're supposed to report back, right? And that's always been flawed because journalists have always been more involved in the power relations of society than, than they would normatively allow themselves to say that they do. And... I, I just think that how do you fight back against this constant, constant stream that everything you do is biased, right? It's never about a story. It's never about what Stephen keeps said to, to, to Donald Trump. It's about the assumption that foundationally everything you hear is false. And it's just been repeated over and over and over again. And, you know, one of the things I, I think that we try to get to at the end of the book is we 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 want to recognize that this has been decades in the making, right? This didn't start now. I mean, I think we tra- trace it back. You can trace it back as far as you want. There's some really good books on this, but I'd say really say Rush Limbaugh in the 1990s and, and, and talk radio. And then that Fox news, of course, became popular. And so with that, I, I, I think we have to recognize that this will generation to sort out. There's no magic fix 
that things are going to get better right away. It's we have to recognize how long it took to get where we are, all the changes in the media environment, the media culture that we've seen, and start building a future where we can have a more responsive journalist, a journalist that's more comfortable with the moral voice, a journalist that, journalist that can fight back, but are also reflective of their own mistakes and missteps and can admit to the things they've done wrong. You know, that is going to take a long time to establish, but there's no other choice. There's no magic fix. And the alternative is just for things to get worse. None of us want that. So it's, it's really about a long-term rethinking of how journalism works. And I think that's where we see our responsibility as, as authors and scholars of journalism is, is giving, giving a voice to this discussion and trying to push things forward and, and, and allowing us to imagine different ways of doing journalism. I mean, back to Seth's point, most people, I think, you know, want to, just the facts journalism because they've been told that's what journalism is forever. I went to school and I read newspapers in fifth grade and newspapers are facts and this is how it works. And you're all individuals and you make up your mind and and, and, and we don't have a, a way of even talking. Even when we were putting together the idea of the moral voice in the book, we had to figure out what exactly we meant. And we're not even sure if we know exactly at the end, but because it's a whole new way of thinking that we need to establish and, and, and give room to grow. So I'll give you the last word here, Matt. What So what, what are you working on moving forward? Or do you see opportunities to continue this this research, sort of the, the threads that you started to pull here with this book? Yeah, yeah. one of the things I, I, I that the book really um, made me think about more, it was just this back to this idea we've used of, of decentering journalism. And, and just to explain that a bit more, like we think about, you know, as journalism scholars, we see journalism as the center of the world. <laughs> and... One of the things we need to recognize is in, in Seth's examples recently, you know, about people turning off news is a really good one. And I bet these people would say they don't feel ill-informed, that there are many other avenues to which they get information and they can find things. So what I'm trying to say is that we need to figure out what it's like to live in a world where journalism is just one voice among many other public mediated voices. And the challenge there is that in some ways that's incredibly useful. I'm in Minneapolis, the murder of George Floyd came to light because of, of uh, a teenager with a cell phone. At the same time, we have a toxic social media environment where people are constantly, you know, re-spreading the lies of the election, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, is this a good or a bad environment? And I think that as, as scholars, and as people who think about journalism, we need to, to wrap our head around this, this broader environment. So, you know, and that gets us back to, to wrap this up, like where the book came from, right? You know, it's a book about Donald Trump and his time in the White House as, as a candidate, but it's really about this media environment we live in right now that's not going anywhere. And understanding, using Trump to understand this whole environment and make sense of it. And hopefully to give us some tools for thinking about how to do the best that we can in this, in this challenging media environment. Right. Well, we will leave it there. The book, again, is News After Trump, Journalism's Crisis of Relevance in a Changed Media Culture, available from Oxford University Press or wherever you get your books. Matt and Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.